It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 287 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, joined by Jill. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. It's the Monday after Thanksgiving. And yeah. We're kind of cheating. <laughs> we are. In fact, when you were like, this is going to be episode 287, I was like, well, it's only kind of going to be 287. <laughs> uh, so we decided because it's the Monday after Thanksgiving and we are off for the week and not going to have time, the work are going to give you guys sort of like a refresh of an older episode yeah um and this is the cool like we've interviewed so many amazing people but this is the actual coolest thing we've ever done so correct um and new ish listeners and it could be even honestly like the last two years at this point yep so not new listeners if you've long time listener but you've only been listening for two years you may not have known that we interviewed alan cumming live uh, at our local library in front of, like, 600 of our closest friends. Yes, yes, we did. Um, so we're going to let you re-listen to that. Um, is there anything else you want to talk I mean, I think you're going to leave the intro from the other ones so you can right. get more reason. He wrote books. You'll hear about them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, hope everyone's having a good Monday. And um, you can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds, and you can email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. If you listened to our Thursday episode, you know that, um, you know, if you, for the next couple weeks, if you want to get some book recommendations for you or for someone you need to give a book gift to, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll hopefully be able to, to um, do an episode coming up with some gift-giving book recommendations for listeners. Yeah. I think that's everything. I got nothing else. Okay. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this re-listen um, to an earlier episode of the Professional Book Nerds with uh, Alan Cumming. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 73rd episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. To us. Well, to the podcast. To the podcast. It's neither of our actual birthdays. It is not. That would be okay. weird if it was. Yeah, if, if our one-year anniversary of the podcast was on an actual birthday, that'd be great. Uh, no. So what happened for this episode, Jill? I don't know. Not much. Not, not a big, not not a a big deal. Lot. Not a whole lot. We interviewed Alan Cumming. Yeah, we did. The legend, Alan the great, this the best person on earth, Alan Cumming, I think. He certainly has one of the best voices. Uh, yeah. He's just a wonderful person and he we we got there and he was in the middle of signing 400 books yes just, yes he was and because he didn't have time to say after because he had to go do a show at playhouse square he had to go sing songs he had to sappy go songs sing sappy songs alan coming sing sappy songs that is his cabaret style show so he couldn't say after so he had to do that beforehand and then we talked 
talked, we spoke, we chatted for an hour. Words are hard. Uh, we chatted with him for an hour about his newest book, which is You've Got to Get Bigger Dreams. We talked about his memoir, which is Not My Father's Son. We talked about how he narrates audiobooks. We talked about him on The Good Wife. We talked about a lot. We talked about a lot because he's done so much. So, uh, it, uh, so good. I don't have words to describe how great this was. And we took the, I'm just going to call it the greatest selfie of all time. We did. We did. It was a good selfie. Yeah. With Alan, the two of us, and then 400 of our closest new friends. Yep. So if you are looking at this on Libsyn, you will see that. And if you follow us on social media, you probably have seen that already. So yeah, it was amazing. And this is our big one year anniversary of the podcast. Can you believe it? It's crazy. I, over a year, I, just, I have no words. Over a year ago, you came up to me and you're like, I have an idea for a thing. Why don't we do a podcast? I know. I was like a brand new employee, too. I think I'd been here for like a month. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. I, I came I and I was like, we should have a podcast. Yeah. And then we sat down and we uh, came up with how we wanted to structure it, which has changed a lot anyway. Agreed. And uh, we came up with a name and we pitched it to my director. He said, uh, go for it. And then we recorded a few episodes in rooms that had horrible sound. And... <laughs> oh, God, they did. It yeah. was horrible. And now we have our own recording studio. We do. Which you and I just kind of have taken over as our little private office. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's been a long time. And like you said before, thank you to everyone who stuck with us in the beginning. I <laughs> Our our first episode, I wanted to look this up just to see. Oh, no. <laughs> no, we, I think we got, when at first we got like 60 downloads. 60? On the first day, which All is right. actually pretty good. For the first but, day of something, not too shabby. Yeah, you know. but we've come a long way Thankfully, since then. Thankfully, we have more than we that We have now. more than that now. If we had so 60, thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you. If we only had 60 downloads now for all these episodes, my director would probably be very bad that we paid a lot of money for all these. And like after that was probably Overdrive employees, oh, to be 100, honest. 100%, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, without question. And they were probably like us downloading them on different devices and computers. Um, so, yeah, it's we're feeling happy and nostalgic and all those good things and we look forward to many 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 more episodes of providing you guys book recommendations and fun interviews with authors and yeah i don't know there are other things i don't know no uh thursday is going to be our big best books of 2016 episode yes so we're going to bring back a number of our staff librarians and co-workers who have been on the podcast before and ask them what their favorite books are. We're going to let everyone say their three favorite books because asking someone their favorite book is very difficult, which you'll hear Alan Cumming talk about, that he hates offering up favorite things. And then yep. I proceeded to ask him, our nerd nine, all about his favorite stuff. So, yep. um, But yeah, on Thursday we'll have a bunch of people coming in and telling them, telling you guys their favorite books of the year. So give you a nice year-end best-of type of a list. Yep. And actually... Do us a favor. If you have your favorite books, send us an email at feedback at overdrive.com. We'd love to hear what your favorite books are. I'm actually working on creating a Overdrive users' favorite books of the year list on overdrive.com. So I would love to add our podcast listeners in there. So if you send us an email, that would be, that'd be great. I would love to see those. So, 
uh, like I said, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and email us and all that good stuff, all that jazz. So, anything else? No. What about you? I don't think so. I'm excited. Our holiday party is tonight, so <laughs> I'm very excited about that. Yeah, we're recording this on Friday. Yeah, Overdrive throws a good party. We always we do We always this. throw a good party. Yeah, we throw a good party, and very, very excited about that. So See if any of our library listeners come to GP. The GP. I can't GP. speak today. Okay. The GP. In August, I'll get to find out yeah. about the parties. They are spectacular. So, All right. Well, I was going to sing Cabaret, but I'm just we've already done that once, so I'm not going to force people to listen to me do that again uh i hope you all enjoy this very special one-year anniversary episode of the professional book nerds podcast with alan cumming no doubt you've enjoyed his many films including circle of friends emma and goldeneye he also co-wrote, co-directed, and co-starred in Anniversary Party with his friend Jennifer Jason Lee. His range is truly extraordinary. He has, been, he has voiced a Smurf, played Hamlet. He's been an X-Men and hosted Masterpiece Theater, the Tonys, and the International Emmy Awards. In 2012, he opened his first photography exhibition, Alan Cumming Snaps. He also found time to introduce an award-winning fragrance called, appropriately enough, Coming, <laughs> and a later scent, Second Coming. <laughs> In 2014, he published his best-selling memoir, Not My Father's Son. And of course, today we are here to celebrate his latest book, You Gotta Get Bigger Dreams, of which you'll all be getting a copy, as well as his hit one-man show, Alan Cumming Sings Sappy Songs. And, of course, Alan will be also appearing tonight down at Playhouse Square in the Connor Palace at 7.30. So without further ado, please welcome our professional book nerds and true Renaissance man, Mr. Alan Cumming. Hello. Hello. That was a lot. I was worried your intro, we weren't even going to have time to actually ask you any questions. Just, <laughs> you've done so much. I'm very old. <laughs> All right, so just to kick us off, uh, can you maybe share with people who might not be aware why and what You've Got to Get Bigger Dreams is kind of all about and where the idea came from? It's, it's a book. It's a book, first of all. And, uh, it's a good start. It's a book of stories and photographs that are, that are sort of little... I mean, I, I, I like this idea of snapshots. They're snapshots of my life, literally and visually. And it's just a kind of way for me to, you know, tell stories about things that have happened to me, but also do it in a way that's not maybe... The conventional way, and I like the idea of doing it. You know, I, I like taking photographs, but I like I kind of like snapping the essence of a moment rather than taking a beautiful picture mostly. And so I thought this is a good way to kind of combine my photos and and also I like I like it the idea that it's what a book you can pick up and read one of the stories and put down and then pick it up again and you know it's a good on the loo book. Yeah. <laughs> I will admit to reading it all in one sitting, not on the loo. That would have been, but I will been, admit going all the way through. Yeah. So. So I will admit, I read it all in, at once. So That's fine, too. All right. <laughs> um, you wrote your memoir, Not Your Father's Son, and it's such a moving and emotional story. This is a little more of a lighthearted approach to the things in your life. What was sort of the mental transition between writing these two different books? Well, actually, I, I, I sort of started this book before Not My Father's Son. So I've been, some of the stories go 
um, a way back. Like, well, the first story is about when I got my first camera when I was 10. And then there's a story about Gore Vidal that I wrote shortly after I um, spent the time with him that the story's about. So the, the, those stories I'd started to do, and then all the stuff that happened to me because that was mm-hmm. the um, catalyst for Not My Father's Son happened. So I kind of postponed, you know, put this book to the side and then wrote that one. So coming back to it was actually a really nice sort of a fun kind of thing to do after the sort of intensity of Not My Father's Son. I felt that I and my readers could do with a bit of a break, you know, yeah. <laughs> lighten up a bit. But I, I mean, but that's, but the, so the stories are, it's also more about my contemporary life mm-hmm. now. And, um, and, and also I wanted to kind of just, you know, do a book about the crazy stuff that I, that I experienced, but also be able to stand outside it and, 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 you know, give it the value of crazy that it deserves. And so... You've got to get bigger dreams. It's obviously a very visual book, but for you know, Not My Father's Son, we both listen to the audiobook. It's something that I'm a big fan of. Anytime there's a memoir or an autobiography, listening to the person actually tell the story is something that makes, I think it brings the story to an entirely another level. And that you're not just doing audiobooks of your own stories, you have a history of, of doing audiobooks yeah. for others as well. So, can you maybe just take us through that experience of? creating an audiobook version of a title, whether it's for yourself or for another author? Well, it's, um, I really like it, actually. I really like doing audiobooks because um, it's just, you know, I, I sort of think of myself as a storyteller. No matter what I do, it's, that's all I'm doing is, is really telling stories in different forms. So actually just sitting down and telling a story is like the sort of, you know, apotheosis of that. And so I, it's, it's quite intense because, you know, if it's a whole no- unabridged novel, it can take quite a few days. Um, and you're just in a little studio on your own with someone through the glass kind of telling you when you've missed a word or something. <laughs> um, but so w- when it's, um, you know, someone else's book, I just, I read the book and then just, if there's lots of different accents and things, you know, you have to kind of do a little bit of preparation. And not, once I did a Michael Ondaatje book that was set in Sri Lanka, and there was one, there was one page that was just a list of uh, Sri Lankan names of people who'd been <laughs> murdered in this sort of thing. Like, oh, my God. One page took me like an hour uh. with all the pronunciations. But um, for my book, it was... My books, it's been interesting because I haven't... You know, I, I've read... I maybe read passages of them aloud uh, just to my husband or to friends or something. But most... A, a, a huge swathe of it, I've never read, you know, aloud before. So it's kind of funny... Uh, hearing your own story in a different way. And then the first, my first book is a novel I wrote called Tommy's Tale. They re-released that um, when Not My Father's Son came out. And so, <clears throat> and shortly before that, I did the audiobook. I don't know why I didn't do it when it came out, but it was really kind of funny going back to something after such a long time. And, and I, was, I was reading my own book thinking, gosh, it does end rather suddenly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to get better at structure. Um, but the, and I actually even did an audiobook of Not My Father's, of um, this one, You've Got to Get Bigger Dreams. So of an audiobook with a, when you download it, you get a PDF file with a lot of the pictures on it. So it's kind of an audiovisual book. Oh. I'm, just, I'm just imagining you being like, describing the picture while it's, imagine me sitting with my dog. Yes. And his, well, some days you have to go, you have to go like, so, and in the picture, which you can download on your PDF, <laughs> and blah, 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 it's a little laborious, I thought. <laughs> That's actually kind of fun. A lot of audiobooks now, especially with memoirs, the actors sort of insert a little bit extra when they when they do the audiobooks. They don't just straight read the books. They had commentary a little oh, bit. Did they? Oh, I didn't do that. That's no. okay. <laughs> next time, next time. You can do the that. one thing I did, I read the, I read the uh, acknowledgments, you know, at the end, that I, and I'd never read them uh, before. And also I'd never kind of, I'd, you do the acknowledgments at the, the very end, you know, just before everything goes to press or print, or whatever you call it nowadays. 
And um, that, was, that was the hardest part for me because I hadn't actually ever read that aloud and what I was saying was much more new and less um, uh, measured, you know what I mean? Because I, I, I sort of said, I forgive my father and I'd forgotten I'd said that and I, I suddenly got all upset in the, mm. in the, in the, in the studio. So um, this is a book about your camera and as an actor you're used to having cameras on you all the time and, and you sort of... I'm imagining. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Yes, I, I know. Do. There's cameras now in the audience. Yeah, I'd say there's there's a few in here. <laughs> a few flashes. Um, as an actor, I'm imagining you sort of pull personal experiences that you use when you act on, you know, when you're acting. With not my father's son, here you are in this very um, dealing with this personal stuff behind this cameras, but you're filming this reality TV show, trying to not let that come on camera, like what was that like? It was a nightmare, I mean it's really, really crazy. I mean this is the thing about my last book where I, I was doing this BBC show, Who Do You Think You Are, you know, where they trace your genealogy. And then at the same time as I was filming that, I was dealing with the fact that my father told me I wasn't his biological son. And, and I was traveling all around the world on this show and trying to like do a DNA test with my brother and all these things. It was, it was just, it was, it was maddening. I mean I felt really, I felt, you know, and having to sort of, my father suddenly was back in my life mm -hmm. after 20 years. And, and I was then I went back to film this thing in South Africa. And it, it was really, I mean, the craziest, sort of funniest, but awful things. The last time I ever spoke to my father, when, you know, when I discovered the results of the DNA test and had to tell him. And I knew this would be the last time I'd ever talk to him. And I said, so. I, I, I finished the call, put the phone down, I realized I was completely in drag in my trailer in, in, in lunchtime in South Africa. I was, I was being a transvestite. And so I was wearing, like, I had my, my wig was off. I had full makeup, a bra, chicken cutlets, and, like, you know, stockings and high heels and everything. I thought, this is absolutely perfect. This is, this really is the icing on a very horribly tasting cake. Uh, so, and not to bounce around a little bit, but we you know, want to cover as much of your you know, life and amazing experiences as we have. So uh, with your cabaret-style show, Alan Cummings Sings Sappy Songs, uh, in your most recent title, you talk about a little bit how you had these singing opportunities where you were used to playing characters, and so in your mind, you were, the character could sing. It wasn't Alan Cummings singing. It was yeah. the MC singing. And then you had a, an experience where it was at the, the Hollywood Bowl that they said, would you like to sing these songs? And you realized it was yourself, you were actually going to be singing yes. as yourself. So maybe, how, is that where Alan Cummings' Sing Sappy Songs came from, was kind of realizing that you can do this as well? Well, um, yes, sort of. So, I mean, what really happened was I did, so that was a long time ago, that's a story in, in this book mm -hmm. I, about singing at the Hollywood Bowl, because it's just such a, it was the first time I ever sang, you know, as me. It didn't start small. It was at the Hollywood Bowl <laughs> with a 70-piece orchestra and 18,000 people in the audience. And I was doing it with Anne Miller, the MGM musical legend, and Charlotte Church, voice of an angel, <laughs> and, uh, and Leah Deleria, uh, voice of the devil. And so, but it was one of those things that I, you know, I'd sort of thought, okay, challenge yourself. It was very far in advance. And usually I say things like that, you know, I said, yes, it's fine. It's nine months' time. I'll, be, I'll, I'll get myself ready. And then, you know, a month before, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so I did it. It was only three nights. And I just had, only had to sing, like, three songs. It wasn't that big a deal uh, in terms of my time and everything. But it was a huge deal in terms of that I was just walking out on stage and not, you know, have it singing in a different voice. And, and um, so then, cut to, I talk about this in my show tonight, actually. 
in like 2008, I think, the Lincoln Center in New York asked me to, they have this thing called the American Songbook Series, and they asked me to do a concert, two concerts. Um, and they sort of, you know, they sort of pay for you to have a show, really. They kind of pay, give you money, then they sort of they commission a show, then you have a show and you can... So I did, in 2009, I did my first cabaret show. It was called I Bought a Blue Car Today. It was about me becoming an American citizen. And, um, but like, a, you know, stories and songs, like tonight. And I kind of really, I bit the bullet and really, you know, did it and enjoyed it. I remember, like, when the very first performance, like, the band went on to tune up and I was left on my own. I was so nervous, like, just, like, totally just sh shaking, really shaking. And, and there was a little man, you know, with, the, with his um, headpiece on, a little walkie-talkie thing. And I, went, I just said to him, I said, I could run away right now, couldn't I? <laughs> And nobody would, nobody would know. And he was just like, he thought, oh my God, I've got a crazy one here. <laughs> I actually, I was, I was this close. And my manager came to, the, to, the, to, to my room and I said, how are you? And I, I just went, I want to punch you in the face. <laughs> I just was so, I felt like something was out of body experience. But then, you know, I got better at it and I got more comfortable with it. And so then this show, which I started last year, um, and then coming to some songs, I, 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 because I felt I was getting better at it, I made it a more emotional and more kind of, I talk about more personal things, and it's, 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 you know, the songs are all quite intense, emotional songs. It's funny and everything still, but I think I've just got better at it. I mean, I'm more comfortable at being vulnerable in terms of myself, and I talk about quite vulnerable things, like my father and a tattoo I had removed and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we sort of did bounce around questions a little bit because you've done so much, the books, the TV, movies. My porn career. Uh, that porn as well, career. that as well. Can't forget that. That's um, my new thing. If people that come up to me and they say that thing, I'm going, I just, I know you, but I don't know where from. <laughs> I always say, do you watch a lot of porn? <laughs> and then they stop talking to you after that. <laughs> well, maybe that actually answers my next question. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Is there anything I haven't done that I want to do? No, no. <laughs> That's another question. No, just kidding. Um, how would you, if someone came up and asked you, like, what do you do for a living? How would you describe yourself? Well, just, I mean, just on an easy, normally I just say I'm an actor. But I, if I was to do it, like, I think at the back of the book, actually, I say I'm a, I think of myself as a, as a, a, a storyteller and a provocateur for hire. That's All good. right. That's good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that good. Okay, so, and don't let the fact that you're sitting in a library influence this answer at all, but if you could only pick one of your careers, writer, actor, singer, you know, movies, TV, what would you choose? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's so Sophie's choice, this question. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so, like, unlikely that I'm going to be, you know, someone saying, you've got to choose, Alan! Um, but I think if I did, I mean... I mean, I really do... F I mean, it would definitely be the theatre. It would definitely be being on a stage, whether it's, in a, you know, like doing a play or something or whether it's doing my show right, like I do right now. Because what's great about this show is that, I, you know, I go all over, the all over the world, actually, and do it. And you get this amazing connection with the audience and, and it really sort of sates my, you know, need for live performance. But I don't have to do it for, like, you know, six months, eight shows a week. So it's actually a really nice way to kind of keep my toe in or my hand in whatever you call it um, um, and, and, and also you know it's very it definitely keeps your it's definitely a workout in terms of performance because you're it's just you I mean I've got my lovely band but you know it's funny I was saying the other night we ate, we ate um, this delicious dinner but a little too near the curtain time <laughs> and so I was so burpy and there's, there's, there's nowhere to hide when it's just you and you're you know yeah. you have to like in the I have to like slug water when people are clapping or laughing 
And so burping is quite hard to do in a one-man show. <laughs> I feel like you could get away with just telling people, like, look, well, I, it's my show, I had yeah. a dinner, I'm sorry, you're going to have to deal like, with this. Sorry, I'm going to have to burp now. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, when we were backstage, uh, you were talking about Margaret Atwood, who's yeah. one of my absolute favorite oh, authors. She, uh, she is, yes. Um, and I know from you know, following you on Instagram that you're a fan of hers, too. Yes. Are there any other authors that you really like and read? There's a, there's a really great author in Scotland called Janice Galloway, and I just always, you know, because of doing books, you have to sometimes write your ten favourite things. And it's always a difficult thing, that, because I don't know about you, but whenever you're asked for your favourite something or other, I, you can't, I can't think of anything I've ever liked. It's just like, <laughs> and people say, what's your favourite play? What's, you know, sometimes theatres say, Alan, any play you ever want to do, just come and do it, and I can never think of a play I've ever liked or a character <laughs> I've ever wanted to play. But, with, but Janice Galloway is this amazing Scottish writer, and she's really sort of... Um, visceral and uh, you know, I, I, she, the book that got me going on her was uh, it's called The Trick Is to Keep Breathing, and it's about a woman kind of having a breakdown, and you know, it's but it's just it's so brilliant, but you feel like you're inside this person's mind when you're reading it. I mean, it's kind of like a sort of Scottish version of Catcher in the Rye, if you like, you know, a, a female Scottish version, but. Um, but also, I hate when people do that when they say it's a, it's Catcher in the Rye meets the Assassin, you know, it's like, uh, mixtures of things. But I, I really do love her, and I'm always very excited when she has a new book out. And I and also I don't think she's terribly well known here, so I'm always keen to you know promote Scottish talent. Well, we're in a library, so yes, lots of readers. That's perfect time. Yeah. I was say I feel, I feel like I could just see some everybody like kind of quickly writing down like That's yeah. what did you say? Janice Galloway. <laughs> uh, so Jill and I were joking before we. Uh, came here today, that you've had a number of amazing cameos in different things. Sex and the City, uh, you know, you also basically were in Romeo and Michelle, and we were wondering, do you have a favorite cameo you've ever done, or like a favorite memory from a cameo? Um, well, yes. I, got, I mean, there's a thing that I do, uh, I've done recently, it's a, a web series called The Outs, and it, what, what happened was, I Someone said, oh, it's this funny web series. It's about these um, young people in Brooklyn. There's a gay couple who split up, and then it's about the girl, the flatmate, and they're just, just you know, it's kind of like just people trying to get by and just trying to deal with being young adults and love and, you know, everything. And I watched a few episodes of it, and I thought it was really great, and I said, I tweeted that I liked it, and, you know, to try and give it a little boost. And then the, the guy who wrote it, who's called Adam Goldman, he... Um, tweeted back and said, oh, we love you, Alan, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I had lunch with them, and I ended up being in it, being in the house as myself, playing myself, <laughs> which is a, sort of a heightened version of me, I have to say, but I basically <laughs> just, just make out with people everywhere and kind of... <laughs> but, but what was hilarious, I did, I did the first season, and then Vimeo um, commissioned the second season. And so basically, all I do is I go along for a couple of days, and I make out with some hot boy in a bar, <laughs> and, and, everyone, and everyone does kind of, is that Alan coming? That's Alan coming. That's Alan coming. <laughs> So that's quite funny. And, and then once I did a, 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 a mini-series, um, I just went for a week to do this little sp- part in a mini-series for the Sci-Fi Channel. I was getting divorced at the time, and I needed some money. And uh, it was easy, and it was, it was only a week, and so I went. And, um, and it was, you know, it was actually it was a great thing, but I didn't... It was one of those scripts that was so dense and sci-fi and, you know, full of... You had to really, really focus. And, and I didn't really have the time to... I just kind of looked at my bits... And I just couldn't really understand the plot at all. <laughs> so, and I was, I, had, I, was, I, was, I was sort of in this blue kind of, I had a blue face again. And <laughs> I was in a hood. I was some sort of, you know, intergalactic monk. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And I did, the, there was one scene with this, there was a boy, one of those actors uh, who like, speaks very, you know, sort of talks like this. 
because you can't actually hear what they're saying in the scene, which doesn't really help when you've not got a full grasp of the whole plot yourself. <laughs> so I was just standing there being a monk, being an intergalactic monk, doing my thing. And when I saw that, they, they sent me the thing and sent me some clips of it for the press release thing. And I realized that afterwards, they'd, you know, in, in post, they'd put, there, was a, there was like a village between, between us speaking. There was a village in the background on fire and people running around. <laughs> and nobody had told me that. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that might have, you know, affected my performance somewhat. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> oh, God, but I actually realised when I got in that set, I thought, I don't think any of you understand this either. So it all, <laughs> everyone was skirting around, the, the, you know, the, the talking about the actual plot. Um, okay, so Adam and I are huge Broadway theatre nerds. And, of course, Cabaret. What attracts you to that show to keep going back so many times? <laughs> um, well, I think it's really because it's um, it's because it's needed. I think it's a show that's about things that are really important and re- and then unfortunately keep being important. And I wish we were doing it again right now, because it's about it's about the need to the need to embrace difference and not to make people who are other from you the enemy. And it's also about the responsibility we have as a society to be vigilant against slow and insidious extremism. And that is exactly what is happening in this country right now. I, I don't think anyone, even if you did vote for Donald Trump, could not um, admit that, that there's a sudden huge change in the fact that there are people who you know, have, are supporting white supremacist attitudes in the White House. Mm-hmm. That's a, a sudden and marked change. And so I've, that's kind of what was happening in, in the plot of Cabaret. So, I mean, and two years ago when we did it again, it was kind of because I felt it was relevant because of stuff that's happening in Russia. And, you know, and, but it just, sadly, it's, it's such a good... That's why, these, why good plays are done again. I suppose that's why we do the Greeks. You know, they still have lots to tell us. And this, this show is about something, about the, you know, both those things, the need to embrace difference and the need to be vigilant. And I just think that's, those are lessons we need to keep hearing again and again. So that's really what drew, drew mm-hmm. me to them. To it. Yes. So you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned you did it two years ago, and perhaps the importance of it, of it still being very essential. I'm on record on our podcast telling one of the authors we spoke to one of the biggest regrets I ever have. I never got to see you do that performance. Would you ever consider doing it again? Not to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> well. Actually, it's got quite funny. The lady I met in, in the in the when we were signing the books earlier, she thought she'd seen me in <laughs> Cleveland, and it wasn't me. Someone on tour. So actually, it's quite good. People, the kind of people, you know, mm-hmm. when you do a show like that, and then people take over, they kind of sometimes, especially that was so sort of an iconic mm-hmm. look and very sort of me-ish. And so I think a lot of the time, I would I would even flip through magazines and think, oh, that's me, and it wasn't <laughs> someone. So it's actually quite good that maybe someone will do it again, and, if, and people will think it's me, and it's not. But so I did it. I did it this, you know, sixteen years ago. I did it. And then I did it um, last year, and I turned 50 when I was doing it. I know it's hard to believe. but <laughs> So that would mean if I did it another 16 years, I'd be 66 <laughs> years old. I think that would be really oh, weird and pervy to see a 66-year-old man <laughs> in a harness with his <laughs> crotch. But I, what I say is uh, 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 if I do it again next time, I'm going to play Fräulein Schneider <laughs> instead. I think I could pull it off. She's got some great songs. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm putting that out there. I quite like a, <laughs> a, a time for a trans. Um, <laughs> Schneider. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> do you, are, so are there... <laughs> now that's in my head, just yeah. probably permanently. 
Are there any... the man bun and everything already. I was saying, yeah, you're starting because the hair's already growing out. Are there any Broadway shows or roles that you would love to play that you haven't yet? Again, you know, like yeah. I said earlier, I just can't. Oh, I, yeah. I can never remember anything. Yeah, I used to always say King Lear because yeah. I thought it was so far in advance. Now it's not that far, you know, as I'm getting older. <laughs> so I used to say that to shut them up. And now I, I mean, I, I, there's a couple of things that are, you know, bubbling around, but there's nothing that I'm really, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also I think it's better to be open to things and just see what comes up, because sometimes if you're so set on something, you kind of keep your focus on that and you kind of lose what might be mm-hmm. a, a possibility around you. Mm-hmm. So, Cabaret, you've talked about sort of the message and the, the necessity of, of seeing that show, mm-hmm. and art in general sort of exemplifies that. Are there other shows that you would recommend sort of tackle issues that are, nece- you know, like necessary on the same kind of level? Um, well, on right now, you mean, that I've seen? Or just... Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I, I always think, you know, Shakespeare and, and, and the Greeks. I did the Bacchae a few years ago by Euripides, and I think those plays... There's a reason why we keep doing them, because they, they talk about really vital human conflicts and, mm-hmm. and lessons that we need to hear again. And, and so I, w- I would just be, in a, in a general way, talk about those. Although there is an actual a, a play that I just... I was in Edinburgh during the festival, doing my show, and I went to this theatre, I did a sort of workshop thing, and they had pictures of all the old um, plays. that were There was one of me in there in 1986 in this t- um, Moliere play. It was shocking. But uh, there was this play I, I, I saw a, a still from... It was called Good, and it's by C.P. Taylor. And it kind of was mulling. I wrote it down in my, com- in my phone, and, I, and then I came back. And then I, I got, I got um, Jimmy in my, in my office to get it for me recently, and we're actually going to do a reading of it in, uh, next year. And I, it's so fascinating because it's about just exactly what I was talking about. It's, I, I'd seen it once in the 80s, but it's about a man in Germany who slowly, you see him how it just, you know, he's a perfectly level-headed, it's kind of against all the Nazi things to start with, and then through kind of circumstance, cajoling, practicality, pragmatism, he suddenly is um, a member of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really brilliantly written, and also it really shows you how easy it is for us all to slide into something and to, and to not really realise how far we've gone, and that's, this, again, this need to be vigilant. So mm-hmm. that's a play that I'm... It's not necessarily the role that I'm... You know, but I'm actually... I was, I, there was something about it that I realised I was drawn to again, and, and then when I read it, I remembered why. And, and I, I, So things like that that kind of just remind us of lessons we uh, have, should have learned in the past and we've got to you know, right. be vigilant. Again. That's, that's really where I'm at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we want to let some of the audience members ask some questions here, but before we do that, for our podcast, we always ask nine questions. that We call them the Nerd Nine because we like alliteration. And I, I feel like bad. I hate some of these. Saying, I feel bad because you literally just got done saying, like, I can never think of my favorite such and such. So right. I'll make apologies. Okay, in that's fine. Yeah. We won't know. Yeah, I was going to say, you can say whatever you want. We're not going to know any, di- any difference. So the first one is, what is the last book that you read? Um, the last book I read is, oh, um, Whiskey Galore by Compton McKenzie. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old kind of pot boiler it's a it was a film it's about this um ship that sank off the, on on the western isles of scotland and there was all this there's like a quarter of a million bottles of whiskey on it and all the locals and it was during the uh, yeah during the war when there was rations so there was no whiskey on the <laughs> island so they all rode out and grabbed all the whiskey <laughs> and then the excise man came to try and get you know the money for the mm-hmm. duty on it all and and they hid them all they like put them in there was always whiskey in drains and whiskey buried <laughs> and now on the island of um of uh, harris I think, no, Ereski, it's Ereski. Like people, sometimes when they're digging their gardens, they find old bottles of whiskey that have been there for <laughs> 50 years. <laughs> so it's oh, really, I, I was actually doing a documentary in, in those, about those islands, so I 
I read the book to kind of get me in the mood. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Um, no, I don't really. I kind of like just having a, always having a book mm-hmm. in my bag and just... I love reading on planes, I have to say, because that's sort of a... Nobody's going to interrupt you, though. Mm-hmm. If only interruption is someone to bring you a delicious glass of wine, some nuts, <laughs> sure. and I like that. I'm really excited to ask this next one. Do you have a guilty pleasure that you would mind sharing with us here? <laughs> Knowing full well that you get it very personal in your show later tonight. But. Um, well, I actually don't think any... Uh, there should be any guilt around pleasure. That's Good a perfect answer. answer. Okay. All right. Uh, I know you've been all over the world, but do you have a place you'd love to travel that you haven't yet been to? Uh, yeah, I haven't really been to South America very much, and I'd really like to go there. I was supposed to a couple of times, and it all kind of fell through. So that's one of the places that I, I, I want to go. And also, I'm absolutely fixated on train journeys, and I, there's an amazing... Well, there's the Trans-Siberian Express you can take from Russia, and it goes all the way to China, but there's now this other one from Vladivostok to... Um, Moscow that I'm obsessed with because I love a train. I, last week I, I did two overnight train trips in Britain. I went because I go. What I do is in order to beat jet lag when I go to Britain, mm-hmm. I fly on the day flight to London, then get a cab to the train station, get the overnight sleeper to Scotland. So then you wake up and you've had a sleep on the tr- on the plane, some sleep on the train, and you have a little whiskey and everything. <laughs> and then you arrive and you're up early and you kind of you know it sort of. That's beats a really good idea. It, I like yeah, it takes a while longer, but it's I, lo- I love a train. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday? Do you mean like a Halloween or Christmas or something? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, I like the idea of Thanksgiving in that it's not um, religious and it's people all come together. And, uh, but I don't like that it's based on the you know genocide and the indigenous population. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair. So, torn. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I kind of like Halloween because I love seeing everyone let go and dress up. But I I don't really dr- I, I I dress up enough myself. Right. So I don't really like that. I mean. I get. I mean, I like. I w- if, if 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 Thanksgiving had less evil beginnings, mm-hmm. that would be my favorite. Sure, sure. Uh, how about a favorite movie? Oh, well, I think my favorite movie is Waiting for Guffman. It's Christopher. Oh, yes. Because yes. it's Christopher Guest's film. He made all those kind of mockumentaries, you know, but the one about the dogs called uh, Best in Show and everything. And Waiting for Guffman's about a little town in Missouri that is putting on this show, a little kind of community show about the 150th anniversary of the town and for some weird reason they think that this man Mr. Guffman's going to come and they're going to go to Broadway with this (laughs) show and it's so hilarious and tender as well and actually when I I saw it shortly after I came to live in America and it really taught me a lot about American culture because I thought if that's being parodied it must really exist you know (laughs) so Waiting for Guffman was a very educational film for me as well as funny uh, I feel like I know the answer to this one, but we ask it every time. Cats or dogs? Oh, dogs. That's I'm allergic to right cats. Answer. I'm allergic to cats. I really am allergic to I get My eyes go funny. And so, okay. I'm a dog person. Jill is a cat person. So this is like this is a, a this small is a little, yeah. little right. battle we have. So every time someone says dog, I kind of have like a little, <laughs> little, little excitement in me. Uh, favorite food? I like um, spicy things. I'm vegan, so it's kind of like, you know, I once went on, there's a TV show in Britain where you, you sort of, it's a, a Saturday morning cooking thing, and you go on and you are interviewed whilst they're doing things, and you have to say your food heaven and your food hell, and then the audience votes to see whether or not you've got to have, my food hell was, um, how do you say it in America, lychees, is that what you say, lychees, those little fruit, those little, lychees, yes, we say lychees, uh, and I just find them, like, I want to gag just even thinking about them. <laughs> So there was a thing where my, my, my heaven was like spicy potato croquettes or something. 
and my hell was that. And I had to sort of make a plea to the British public <laughs> not to make me eat <laughs> leeches. Oh, God. I know, but I, you know, I, said, I said, really, I will vomit if you do that. <laughs> and I, that might have been more spur for them, but yeah. yeah. But I, I like spicy, you know, like Asian-y things. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would you pick? Um... Actually, I'd love to have dinner with Donald Trump. I really would. Uh-huh. I would s- I'd, I'd love to watch you have dinner do. with Donald yeah. Trump. You should sell tickets. <laughs> I just, I'd, you know, I, just, I would be fascinated just, mm-hmm. be, just, to, just to be that close to him. Actually, I have been that close to him. Um, I sat next to him at a thing once. And, um, but no, I think I'm, I'm, f- I'm fascinated by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and horrified as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I'm, you know, I think it's good to kind of meet the people that you. I, I try. I'm, I think we're all trying to figure him out. I think he's trying to figure himself out. Um, so I think that would be a fascinating mm-hmm. dinner um, yeah. companion. Good. All right. Well, we have a million more questions, but let's let you guys ask some questions. If you have a question, if you want to just stand up, we'll kind of call you out, and then we'll repeat the questions. People can hear right here in the front. So the question, <laughs> the, que- the questions were: What were the politics for you not getting a Tony? For your performance in Macbeth, I want to make sure I get that whole thing accurate. Yes. Um, well, this is a, pr- a production I did actually first of all in Scotland at the na- for the National Theatre of Scotland, and then we did it the next year on Broadway. And I'm, it was a crazy production where basically I played all the parts in Macbeth, and it was incredible. You know, it was incredibly challenging. It's the most challenging I've ever done. I thought I was going to die, and it was a really kind of. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it wasn't a, a very, very unusual thing. And, and what was really great about it was that, A, I lived, but, B, we found a, an audience on Broadway for such a weird kind of, you know, european style concept and an audience of young people, and that really excited me. But I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why I didn't get nominated for Tony. I, I have heard that it's because um, the, the, uh, not enough of the nominee committee had seen, seen the show. That's what I heard. But, and, it's a tragedy, I know, but you know that it's <laughs> it's, only, it's like one of these things when you're. It's a really weird situation because awards are this double-edged sword. Of course, everybody wants to be patted on the back. It's nice, but like if you're, you know, like you see all this list going absolute shoo-ins for nomination, Alan Cumming, blah blah blah, and everyone s- says that you, that you think you're going to be nominated, or indeed also when it, if you're nominated, and they think they say you think you're going to win. That if you don't get nominated, and this happened with Macbeth because everyone did think I was going to get, including myself, I have to say. Um, then they, then you get all this pity. You get like real, like pity. If everyone's, and you get pity presents, which is quite good. That's a good. <laughs> but, and then but after, when you, when you say you're at the, you know, was at the Golden Globes or something earlier this year, and I, I knew I wasn't going to win, but it's just, you know, you, you're, you're, there's a chance you might. There's one in five chance. And then when it's not your name, you're like, okay, great. So where's the bar? <laughs> and, um, and you see all people going like. <laughs> Sad face, you know. So there's, it's. Um, I think you know, it's like reviews, awards, and everything are like reviews. If you believe the good ones, you have to believe the bad ones. And I think it's always, obviously, it's lovely to be lauded and to be told that people like you and appreciate your work. But it's not why I do it. And I, I you know, it was actually a very interesting experience when that happened because it reinforced me. Like what was important to me was doing that play and and reaching an audience that I was really excited were coming to a Broadway theatre. Thank you. Uh, and the. Blue with the scarf? Yeah. Um, 
So the question is, what did you enjoy about your role on The Good Wife and doing TV in general? Well, um, first of all, what, it was a really great uh, experience for me. To, it was like you know, six years I worked on it for nine months of every year. And it was a really, um, it really sort of made me very stable. And, and I, you know, I had structure in my life that previously hadn't been there. And I was able to be at home in New York for at least nine months of the year, which had never happened before. I was always you know, jetting around the world which sounds lovely, and it is lovely, but, you know, it gets a little old when you just want to be at home. So it, it made me, it gave me a great sense of stability um, in terms of my, my home life and also financially, you know, it was just nice to have a regular pay check. And also it, ki- it kind of made me, I kind of grew up a little bit. I mean, I sort of now I'm a, I feel like I'm a man who can, I'm a middle-aged man and I can play people who are real middle-aged men in suits. Because <laughs> when, when I first did it, when I was first cast, it, nobody could believe they'd cast me. I'd never really played real people before. I mean, I'd hardly played... <laughs> a lot of them weren't even humans I played, you know what I mean? So, so I always played kind of extreme people and kind of fantastical people. So the idea that I was playing... That, I mean, he, I think he's as crazy as, you know, a, a mutant, but mm-hmm. uh, n- nonetheless, it was a different thing for me. So in a way, I really appreciate it for that reason as well, that I feel I've grown up a little bit because of it in, and in terms of how people perceive me, perhaps. But, oh, um, but in terms of the character, I, I mean, it was a great thing to kind of come into a show... That was, you know, I, I was in, it was in the middle of the first season. It was this big hit, and I kind of came in, and, and they had this great idea for a character. And I kind of, you know, it was a very interesting back and forth thing with the writers. That you do something, they kind of pick up on it, and and I loved how crazy he was, you know. And just this, every time I think of him, I just kind of tense up. <laughs> and, and someone said, "Oh, you lost weight all during those years." I think that's probably because I was just so tense all the time <laughs> playing Eli. Um, and and he was just a really fun character to play. And as it you know as it go- grew and went on, there was more facets of him. And I loved my relationship, his relationship with my, his daughter, and you know, and it was just a really I, I, I look back on it with such fondness and and uh, a great bunch of people. And I like I'm actually you know I've actually signed on to do another television show for CBS that if it all goes well, if it's all you know uh, the pilot shot and they like it, we'll shoot it, start shooting again and. Uh, next July and be on on television in September, I presume. And I actually really do. I've, I've realised I really enjoy that structure. It's, uh, it's it's kind of I'm quite willing to dive back into. It. It's been nice to have a little break from it and kind of be able to dash around a bit. But yeah, I like it. The heart on your sweater. Frankie. Ah. Uh, So, so the question was, before you were Alan Cumming, <laughs> who helped you out when you were just Alan? Well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I feel really, when I, I, you know, I, went, to drama, I went to drama school when I was 17. I had no back, I, I applied for one drama school. It was the only drama school I knew of in Scotland. There was only, there was only one. <laughs> um, and then I had no backup plan. Uh, I trained for three years and then I immediately just started working. I've worked ever, si- you know, ever since. I'm, it's really boring. I know it's awful, <laughs> but uh, and annoying as well because people. I know, uh, in a funny way, I think it's quite interesting that people, kind of, if you're an actor, they kind of expect you, sort of expected that you, you've struggled, um, and I haven't. And also, but I think a lot of that's to do with I've, I've, I've made a lot of my own work, like this book, like my show tonight. Like I have done things like that. Like the film that um, the, the gentleman talked about, you know, with Jennifer, we've I've written and made a lot of things myself, and so that kind of helps, you know, because you don't always have to rely on people 
uh, doing things actually. But like, I suppose, you know, the, there's this guy, the, the very first uh, theatre thing I did was actually Macbeth. I played Malcolm in a, like a proper production. It wasn't just a crazy person doing all the parts. <laughs> and um, he's, this, he's this director at the, he, he used to, recently ran the Royal Shakespeare Company, he's called Michael Boyd. And I was a student at drama school and he, I actually, I used to do a stand-up comedy thing with another boy called Victor and Barry, and we'd, we'd been doing, uh, there was gong shows in the bar of this tr- theatre, and we won the gong show, and, and then there was like the gong of gongs, and we had to come in, and we won that too. And so he saw me doing this crazy sort of campy double act, um, and then cast me in, in a, as th- you know, to play a prince in, in Macbeth, and, and so I guess he, he gave me my first sort of uh, break, and yeah, and that was, that was, you know, it was like 75,000 years ago. <laughs> The uh, is a black shirt. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Thank you. So, what would your piece of advice be for an up-and-coming performer? I always say, just try and be yourself. Try and resist the temptation and resist the pressure to become a type or a generic version of yourself, and actually embrace who you are and embrace your own experience, and because that is the most interesting thing about yourself. And I feel like. I always say to people, like, when you look at a screen, there's certain people you're more drawn to, you know? It's, there's just, that's, and I suppose that's what being a star is. It's, it's people are, are fascinated by you. But I think the people that we are fascinated with are people who are allowing their own spirits to come through and are not kind of closing themselves off um, and, be, and being a sort of a generic type. So that's, that would be, it's hard and it's, it's easy for me to say, but I think that, that's always the advice I give to young performers. Uh, in the bright green, yeah. My pleasure. So the, que- <laughs> so the question is. <laughs> right. Oh yes. Go ahead. <laughs> what is your internal dialogue like? <laughs> right now, it's like, why did that lady ask me that question? <laughs> 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 Um, do you mean like do I have like kind of uh, you know anxious voices and things? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Internal dialogue. I think I am authentic. You know, I think that's what I do strive for that. And that's actually my show tonight is if there's a you know an overall theme is about authenticity, and um, I feel that again like this, with that uh, with the question you asked about advice to a young performer, being authentic I think is what we all should be. Uh, and uh, something I think to, s- to strive for as a human being as well as a performer. Um, and I think I've found it's, it's always stood me in good stead. You know, I think that the, the more I am my own man and open and, and speak out about things that I think need to be said, I think, I, I often think actually, I, I've noticed that doing my Sappy Song show, I go to places in the world where, you know, and I, with audiences that I know probably don't agree with my politics or even agree with my rights as a queer person actually but I find if you are open and honest and authentic they'll probably respect you for that more than if you were someone who agreed with their politics so it's a really interesting lesson to learn that um, that's you know that kind of trumps um, (laughs) uh, kind of you know uh, ill will so but so I don't really know what my internal dialogue is it's probably just like you know when did I last take my vitamins and stuff like that (laughs) Sorry, it's not a very good answer. Sorry. Um, in the maroon right here in the middle? Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, so, I'm a writer, and I'm 
So what did you give Eli, and what did Eli give back to you as a character? Um, <clears throat> well, I think, I think one of the things why Eli was so sort of popular was that people could, there was a sort of, it's almost a Brechtian thing. It was almost like I, people knew it was me playing Eli. Do you know what I mean? There was a sort of thing that it was quite fun to see what I was going to do with this person. And, they, and so in a way, and I think people, you know, knew that I was very different to him. Um, so there's kind of an interesting, I'm quite intrigued by that. That also happened that you meant, the lady mentioned Macbeth. I, when I did Macbeth, I really noticed that people were worried for me, Alan, as, as well as um, the character in, in this very violent sort of situation I was in. But um, so I think I, um, I, I gave Eli probably a sense of uh, quirkiness and a sense of humor that might not have been there originally. And, uh, and what he gave me was sort of um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, maybe more a bit of tension and kind of, you know, an ulcer or something. <laughs> <but> I, don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I also, I also felt like, you know, I'd arrive on set and Sometimes, like in the summer, when I'd be at these, par- I would go to these sort of beach parties with all funny costumes and everything. And I'd come back in on Monday, and the uh, you know the makeup ladies would be like, "There is glitter on your cheek." <laughs> Sorry, and I'd you know I'd go in, <laughs> I would go and do rehearsal in my like you know Uggs and whatever and flip flops or whatever, and and then you know and, and an old T-shirt and then come down all you know. I, I said it was like getting into Eli drag. Uh, when I I put on my suit and get my hair all done, and and sometimes people wouldn't realize wouldn't, be, wouldn't recognize me, the, some of the crew, um, and sometimes we'd have to stop filming because like if I would turn around and say something and say we see a bit of glitter on Eli's eyes, <laughs> <laughs> and then in the se- in the season six the the penultimate season I was that was when I was doing Cabaret as, again as well, and so I I see clips of I've got loads of eyeliner on from the night before, <laughs> I've got more eyeliner than Alicia actually in some of the scenes. <laughs> Go ahead, Joe. You can repeat Go that ahead. question. Or? You can repeat that I'll, question. Oh, well. <laughs> well, maybe I will, rep- I will become apparent in my answer. Um, I think theatre has always been a platform for questioning social change, politics. That's what it's for. It's, you know, it's, it's a place that people come together, yes, to be entertained, but also to be informed and challenged and, you know... I thought it was interesting when, um, again, to you know, go back to our president-elect, uh, when when this whole thing with uh, when the vice president-elect was booed and they did the speech at the end of Hamilton, and uh, the president said, you know, the theatre is a safe place. It should be a safe place and blah blah. I thought absolutely not. It's not a safe place. It should be a vital, dangerous place. Anything could happen in the theatre, you know, and and that's why we come. It's it's exciting. It's not safe. I don't think safety is what I would think of. I mean, I like going into the building and feeling at home there, but it's because that's a, I I feel that I can express myself and, and, you know, it's a place of ideas and it's a place of challenge. So I think that's always been the case, and I I think especially now, you know, it's always interesting when there's there's a a more right-wing government, you see a rise in satire, uh, performance and writing, and and, and, and I'm sure, you know, one of the positive things about uh, President Trump will be the, uh, a, a really fecund time for uh, writing and protest <laughs> in this country. But so I, um, and I think, as a, I mean, I feel, like, I feel like I have a responsibility as an actor, as a writer, to um, speak out. And as a celebrity as well, uh, I, I think this idea that we celebrities should not say anything is really why 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 uh, they're a, they have opinions they are citizens they have you know and if you have a platform there's a reason for that if people want to ask you about you know 
what colour your hair is. I think then they should at least listen to you about the, your politics. So I, I don't um, adhere to this idea that uh, being famous is uh, 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 sort of um, equals silence. Especially when, if you're an actor and you've an a been an actor from the theatre where you are um, embodying ideas and embodying uh, challenge and asking the audience to... I mean, you're a vessel for uh, social change, I think. So I, I do feel a responsibility for that. I think uh, very much so in the plays that I do, I make, I, 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 you know, to do a play, I have to be really challenged because it's a big commitment. And I try and, try and, with all the material I try and, you know, that I do, I try and kind of find something that excites me and I feel is, is, has some good. And sometimes I just do things for the money. But <laughs> in the theatre, I always try and uh, make sure that what I'm doing ha has some relevance and some social impact and I think that's what my job is I mean that's why I say I'm a provocateur because I think I don't I don't want to just be an entertainer even tonight you know it's, it's just me singing songs and telling stories but I feel I'm challenging people and you know maybe making them think again about some things mm -hmm. uh, here Gosh, that's an in oh, Go say that. <laughs> Which Shakespearean character would Donald Trump be? It's a weird sentence to even yeah. say. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a very good point. I, it's such, I, I, I haven't actually you know, given this much thought. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say Iago, but he's not clever enough <laughs> to that. I mean, maybe one of the sort of kind of those drunk people in um, Twelfth Night, what do you call them? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I don't know this yet. Uh, uh, sh even Shakespeare hasn't managed to <laughs> encompass Donald Trump into a role. I mean, I guess it would be like a sort of someone... I mean, what I think is interesting about he's someone who needs approbation and needs power and needs to feel that he is um, the, the winner. And so I'm sure there will, there, there's probably... Characters in Shakespeare like this, but but of course it's because he doesn't feel very good about himself. I think you know, I don't think he wanted to win. I think I actually know from someone that you know knows him that he's absolutely gobsmacked right now that he won. <laughs> he can't, he couldn't believe he even got the nominations. And I and I like I I agree, but <laughs> I don't think in a way. I think he wants to win. I think he needs to, and that's why I think actually right now is probably the safest time. And because he's won, he's the big guy. He's the top. You know, psychologically, he's in a safe place for a while, it's an, and then he's, he's not against the wall being attacked. So, uh, but I think perhaps if it, uh, the character would be someone who is, you know, really, really wants, wants power and wants fame and success for its own sake and not for, it's, it's, a, it's an empty shell, I think. That's, that, I don't know quite who that would be in Shakespeare, but I'm sure there must be someone. Okay, for one more. Down, yeah, down here in front. Oh, that's the one from, uh, yes, that's the one from Twelfth Night, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was adored once, too. That's his great line. <laughs> so I wanted to say, uh, you were awesome on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I'm sorry you lost. You were amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you have to bring that up. <laughs> you handled it beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm curious about your process of releasing your natural voice and working with uh, American accent or the 
of interaction? Do you have a process for that, or how do you find your voice? So how do you find your voice, whether it's with accents or your natural one? Well, it's, it's not as hard as, it, as everyone thinks, I have to say. I think actually the fact that I sound like this, and yet I, you know, people have seen me so often playing an American person, and they think that's much harder. It's, it's not that difficult, um, partly because I grew up in a country that is bombarded with American culture. Like 95% of the films and cinemas are, are American voices in them. A huge percentage of, of television, probably more than you know, we hear British voices, actually. Maybe not, but you know, and that doesn't work the same way. But we get you know Downton Abbey once in a while, and that's kind of it. So, um, <laughs> so what I mean is, I grew up hearing that those sounds, and I grew up, you know, I, well, most people in Scotland can do a passable American accent, you know. So it's not that big a leap. And also, I think I, you know, as an actor, I was told in Scot, you know, I went to this place called the Royal Scottish Academy, and um, I, I was told that I wasn't going to work as an actor sounding like me, and I had to learn, you know, receipt. Uh, sort of English received pronunciation. So I, I, um, that was kind of, a, I think, a, a generational thing. That's not the case now, but I think you know, I, people do much more speak with their own voices in Britain. But it, it set me off on a track of being very, very conscious about accent and listening and having a good ear for things. So I've always done a lot of different accents. I mean, um, I, you know, for an American one now, I don't have a coach, unless it's somewhere difficult. Like I did a film in Minnesota, Ten years ago, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd uh, oh, oh, did we lose someone? Because I mentioned in Minnesota, I sent someone. <laughs> lying. Um, and I had, a, I had a, so I had an accent coach for that. That's a really beautiful film, actually called Sweetland. If you get a chance to see, it, I love it. And then um, the, just uh, the final thing you said about the, my process. I, I, I find the word process very difficult, and I will say I'm not a cheese. I have no process <laughs> <laughs> because. I just think with acting and everything, you should just make it, you should not try and overcomplicate it. You know, when I'm playing an American person, I just do an American accent and just try and inhabit that person and just mean it and not have too much of um, a process that kind of gets in the way of just, you know, I think acting should be like kids playing. It should just be they completely inhabit a character and pretend to be in a situation. And that's how, that's really how I came to acting, was just making up stories to amuse myself. And um, I think th there's been, a, especially in this country, there's a lot of, time and money wasted um, with all these, you know, methods and processes and things. And I just think it would, the world would be a better place if we just, everything was a bit simpler. So I know that your time is very valuable and you have to run here, uh, so you won't be able to stay in and do some signings and things. Anyone who's I've read signed every single every, book. Well, you the did. signings, oh, we four people, it. we saw we that. It. Yeah. Yes. Amendment. Amendment. Put, you I'm won't be able to. On Instagram after everyone this. here won't be able to watch you sign the book. Uh, but anyone who has read your book or follows you on social media knows that you are basically. I'm going to say it, you're the inventor of the selfie. <laughs> so we had an idea that we yeah. could get everyone if we could maybe just do a quick selfie here yeah, with the crowd behind us. Come here. Give me a phone. That's <laughs> perfect. Just and we'll just tag each and every one of you. Yeah. It'll be great. It'll be great. <laughs> no. So let me think. So got go one. I think you might have to go. Yeah, you're going to be the one they want to see anyway. Yeah. You need to go down. Yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah, I'm going down the stairs. Right. <laughs> That's good. Uh, hmm. <laughs> I don't want to like get in front of anybody. <laughs> Adam, go over see a bit. Hmm? This way. Over, over this way. Right, left. Okay, so we've got the majority of you. Ready? One, two, three, smile. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Hey. Alan coming, everybody. Thanks very much. <laughs>
Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.